0: Hi, I'm Monique Farah, and this is who I am.
1: Thank you for joining me in the garage thanks for having me yeah I haven't seen you for a while but um I was thinking about this I think I met you like 10 years ago yeah uh-huh. I
0: think I was playing dead body parts on CSI yeah eventually I I came to life yeah
1: <laughs> and I would often put foam on your feet yeah, when, we when just, you were alive I'm Not a loud walker
0: yeah well it's they, all in
1: the hips they, they, they will yeah yeah <laughs> so how are you and what have you been up to
0: Um, you know, life is interesting. I've been doing my vodka stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm a vodka expert, which Mm -hmm. means I give tastings, I teach lessons, and (laughs) I can drink a lot of vodka and Mm -hmm. still be able to hang the next day. (laughs) So I've been working on that. Um, I started infusing my own stuff and just that and shooting a documentary for the past four years plus.
1: Cool. We'll go back to that stuff. Um, Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in California? Oh,
0: okay. So I grew up... In the middle of a very large, very female, very Middle Eastern Catholic family, mm-hmm. so obviously when it comes to sex, I'm really fucked up. Let's be, <laughs> let's be real. What that does to a person. Um, but I, I every day there's like 15 people in my parents' house, and that still is where I reside in mm. the pool house right now. Thanks. That's. <laughs> At 36, it's really good for my dating life, guys. Let me tell you. (laughs) When you bring somebody home and your parents are in their pajamas watching SVU, it just puts like a damper on the rest of the date.
1: Doesn't lift it up.
0: Doesn't help that situation at all. Uh, But that's what happens when you uh, give your life to the film industry. You have to make certain sacrifices to get your projects made, is what I'm starting to find out.
1: Mm. So, yeah. Did you always want to be in film?
0: Since I was about four years old, I've like. Very clearly remember practicing my Oscar speeches because I knew I wanted to make films
1: always. What did you win for?
0: Would I at the time I don't I, I think when you're a kid, you don't know the difference between a camera person and a director. So I thought they were the same thing. So I was like one for best camera woman. Mm. But at the time, I didn't realize that what I really wanted to do was direct. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. So I took every shitty job in the industry to get there. Mm. <laughs> but you know, it's been it's always a challenge like you I've done everything from B camera operator for the Speed Network to as you know just doing like background and stand-in work and if you really believe in yourself that's what you do. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what I found out.
1: Yeah, it's um, a lot of people do uh, a lot of people do background for life, and there's a, a lot of people who do background because it's good health insurance, good health insurance, yeah. yeah, which is incredibly important in this country and this industry. And this industry
0: definitely in this country. Let's be real. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're all wondering <laughs> what's going to happen next. <laughs> I think when you put yourself in a place where you want to be, regardless of the level that you're at, because obviously, like I don't, people listening to this may not know, but the background world, you're kind of like. Not the cockroaches of the set, but we've been called that before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have, and so I won't name names, but you know um, that originated from the Gilmore Girls set. That like you were sort of referred to as just like furniture on moving furniture on set. Mm-hmm. So it can be a little bit degrading, but if you know what you want to do, you just stick it out because it's, that's not how it's always going to be. Mm-hmm. And you get to see everybody from the ground up, how they really act, and it's it's interesting. It's like being in film school, hmm. at least. That's how I feel, like, graduate film school.
1: Hmm. There's um, you, you can get into that world and get onto, like, a, a long-running show, and it can become pretty much a full-time yeah. job, right?
0: Which can kind of be a handicap, because if you're really pursuing your own projects and you're there 12 hours a day, as you know, um, there is no time to do anything else. Like, hmm. how much time do you have during shows to be with your kids. Let's be yeah. real. So it's like um, if you're if not working night shoots, Saturday morning, maybe,
1: mm-hmm. and Sunday, and then yeah. you're back at it. Yeah, Yeah. it's often you're getting up at five to go to work to and then that. you're getting back uh, after. I mean, you're wrapping at eight, nine o'clock, so you, you're doing five till nine. And, and if you have
0: out. amazingly talented ears like Jamie, you never have time off. No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, did you do... Did, did you want to be an actor and did you do acting in, in school or yeah. did you think I want to be a technical person from that young age? Or
0: I feel like I've always enjoyed the acting part. I enjoy comedy. I enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. I just think you can't be a one trick pony in this industry. And the more that you can do and the more that you can accelerate at, the more valuable you are to any set. But I do feel like as a woman on the production side, it's hard. Even when I was in film school. I knew that I was just as good as the guys I went to school with, but no one asked me to work on their projects with them, and it Mm. would fucking piss me off. (laughs) Because I knew that I, I, at least in the technical world, like I knew I knew what I was doing. So I find that now because of, and not to get political, but because of uh, who is in office right now and because of our president, it is more accepting now to have women in the industry because Mm. I feel like you can't have big change without having such a, divisive human being out there mm. like if we had actually had hillary the me too movement would have never happened mm. it would have been a lot of the same but you have somebody who's so extreme that you can't just sit back and do nothing and so i think that actually opened up a world for us that may not have been open like yeah. without that weinstein shit just hitting the fan the industry would still be the same yeah so it's almost like i don't know that powder keg of A president may change things for the positive because people are getting off their asses and doing something like 18 year olds are vote. 18 year olds are doing something. That's crazy to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People say millennials are lazy, but let's be real. They're the most accepting like generation that we've had yet. When I was in high school, maybe one person was out of the closet. When you were in high school, was anybody
1: uh someone came out to me, and it was a really big deal. A and they, really they big deal. they were struggling deal. with it. So.
0: But you think about it, like, out of uh, however many people went to your high school, 500, 2,000 people, that can't be the legitimate of mm-hmm. number of people yeah. who were dealing with this. And now that we know that sexuality can be more fluid, it's like, this generation doesn't care, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me. Yeah. Like, that brings me hope. I'm like, you guys can, yeah, they never had to wait for dial-up. They don't know what a fucking beeper is. But (laughs) at the end of the day, like, they're a catalyst for change. They're the best army you could have because they're on their social media. In two seconds, you can get 100,000 people on downtown L.A. for a march. Mm -hmm. Like, that just wasn't present before. So as negative as everything is coming in, I find hope in that generation Mm. to an extent. Mm -hmm. It's just that. The Xennial that I am know that we have to lead them. That's that weird mid-generation. Do you know about Xennials?
1: That's the Generation X millennial. It's like between 78
0: and like 85 or something. I'm I'm not part of that. Yeah, but like we're the shit. (laughs) (laughs) We are the last people who know life like before the internet but still transitioned into it. So I feel like it's up to us to kind of like, I don't know. Mm. Get rid of all the baby boomers in power.
1: They had a, they, we've got to kill them off. Yeah, and it's like my and parents. So it's
0: like I love my parents. I want them to live forever. But I told them, like, you're who's screwing up this fucking nation. You want to keep us in the 60s, and we need to get out of that yeah. mentality. I mean, you know what's going on. Like, as soon as the Roseanne thing, which is a huge topic right now, there is. A, I do think it was kind of nuts for them to pull all the reruns because I, did, I think that's a disservice to all the cast and crew that worked on that show. Forever, but what she said, like she, it's unacceptable. And people say, well, you know, Samantha B turned around and called Ivanka a cunt. That's so different. Can I say cunt on this show? You did. Okay, great. <laughs> that is very. There's not a historic. There's a historical racist root in our country, like there is with something. Like I just think it's different.
1: Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I agree. I mean, I think Samantha B was playing to her audience a little bit, and. Um, And it was a quick, easy gag. Yeah. And it made, you know. It's crass. Let's be real. It's crass. But it was, it was probably, I mean, it gave fuel to a bunch of people who really don't understand minutiae that are very black and white and everything is like, it's this or this, which is the problem, which is that all of this stuff is like the Roseanne stuff is a history of racially charged language and her punching down. And she even said, she made a comment about how like comedy is. Finding the the most famous person in the room and not attacking them, and it's like no comedy is you, you never punch down. That's the the it's, rule of comedy yeah. is never, and that's where I think a lot of the right has a as a problem. They can't see, they see these kind of crass, loud mouth, left leaning comedians, which is think, crazy
0: oh. because look who's president. Yeah. when you're talking about crass, yeah.
1: loud mouth,
0: yeah, it's just. I mean, I get. I just. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in that situation because I feel, it reminds me, okay, I'm going to offend a lot of people by saying this. Is that okay?
2: Sure.
0: Okay. (laughs) So it reminds me of that stage. Do you know how Scientologists become Scientologists? Uh, There's like a whole level. Okay, so there's a whole level of becoming a Scientologist where you invest a certain amount of money And I've been watching way too many Scientology shows. But at a certain point, they take you in a room with the book, and they tell you exactly what Scientology is all about, Mm -hmm. which I don't know the specific details. I know there's, like, volcanoes and aliens and stuff like that, but you believe whatever you believe. But for a lot of Scientologists who hit that stage, they have said in a lot of interviews, they read the book and they realize... I don't believe in this, but I'm $200,000 invested. Mm-hmm. Like I have to believe in it or I have to just admit that I was wrong. And I think Trump supporters are in that position yeah. where the book is open and they see what they've really done. But it's like, do I want to have to hear that I was wrong for the next
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, three years? Or am I going to just, I feel like it's that, is that a terrible analogy?
1: No, it's, it's fine. Uh, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. I have a, a friend, um, Sheila, who, who made a documentary that was about Trump uh, it kind of touches on that cognitive dissonance that happens a lot of the time. And there's a theory that, sh- that, that is mentioned. I can't remember the name of the, the documentary at all. I'm so sorry. But oh, yeah. um, there's, a, there's a theory that's like the pyramid theory, which is that when you have a divisive uh, theory that comes along and two people are either side of the pyramid, if they start to slide down, then they exponentially get further and further apart. Yeah, And the difficulty at that stage isn't, Talking to either of them about their theory about like why they went down the path, it's getting them to see that they've split so far and admitting that at some point they could have, they could have figured that figured out. it out and gone together. And there is like, there's an admittance thing that, that that people have a lot of difficulty with. A lot of like you say, it's like, well, I was conned. Okay, yeah, I'll like, walk away. Which it or, happens.
0: Yeah. Like, I, one thing you learn about reality TV is once you get to the reunion show, if you apologize for what you've done, America forgives you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are we expecting a big apology at the end of this? Yeah. No,
0: but you know what, though? I think it takes both sides. It's Let's not pretend that if – and I might get a lot of hate for this. I'm not a I'm not a Hillary supporter. I don't think you need to be a Hillary supporter to not support Trump. Yeah. And I think that had there been a candidate that people trusted, I don't think this would have ever happened. Yeah. But I just don't think either side presented what anybody really people wanted. Let's I'm not going to make that generalization. Me personally, I feel like I there wasn't a win.
1: No. Yeah. The the problem. I mean, Hillary has a lot of problems. She's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just like,
0: but you know, she could talk to people on the phone. Mm-hmm. You know that there wouldn't be like five different presidents from other countries saying, "I don't want to associate with this man or speak with yeah. him." And you, I, you sure as hell, the Cleveland Cavaliers would go visit her at the White House.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have that. What was the? I, I didn't even understand the the uh, Philadelphia oh, League what happened? Fake, um, fake party to prove that America is great by getting a bunch of people to dress up as. Oh, Eagles fans. Because I really, I don't even. I yeah. didn't even know that that Hell happened. Yeah. I yeah. missed that. It's just that's the thing. It's. Just I went on two bad dates thing. yesterday, and I missed exactly you what did? happened to the, the world. Time
0: yeah, no, I mean, I split it up a <laughs> day okay. and a night. I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> <I>
1: got, <laughs> you got to fit them in. I got to fit them in. Yeah, how do you if, if you're starting to overlap on a on a date and it's cutting that's into the other one? That's happened one
0: time, you- and it gets you in a lot of hot water, mm-hmm. especially if the first date catches you texting the second date that you're going to be a little bit late. I'm better now. I'm older. I'm more mature. I give at least like four hours lap
1: time. Mm-hmm. And if you
0: know you're not going to sleep with either of them, it's not like you got to shave or like spend time in between. <laughs> <laughs> First date, guys.
1: Yeah. So you skipped as Got to keep it together. Yeah.
0: Well, I never invest in dinner if I've never met them before. Okay. That's a lot. That's like appetizers and entree. I got to sit, wait for the bill to come. Mm-hmm. Let's start with a martini and see how that situation unfolds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what was the last time you dated? Like you?
1: uh, Oh, damn! Um, So
0: long ago, there weren't dating apps.
1: No, there weren't. There weren't. I don't even. Wait, did you meet your wife here? We met in England. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you guys have a great relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, we've known each other for for a long time. So. And
0: his kids are really cute. I don't know if you guys know that, but I love your your children have the best hair I've ever
1: seen. They're great.
0: Yeah. Every time I see their hair, I'm like, oh, it's gonna make some wonderful extensions someday. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Locks for love. hmm oh, Or like yeah. women like me who are like go oh, to the wig shop and they're like, come on, mm. let's see. Yeah. That's not your real hair. Most of it is. Okay. Like seventy eight percent. Okay. The extra two. It's Hollywood. <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> I know. It's Glendale. Actually, this is more like my hood. You see more people looking like me here than
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Yeah. It's like fully Armenian. Yeah. I'm not Armenian, but it's all hummus. Like you That's know what all I
1: mean? chickpea.
0: Oh, you know Kidby. Holy shit. He's legit, guys.
1: <laughs> um, so, film school. Which film school did you go to?
0: Loyal Marymount. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, I was actually third in the nation, I will say. There was like um, a thousand kids in our program, if that. So, our class alone was 40.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, that was, you get a lot of personal attention. But we did everything from like Super 8 cameras, taking the film, putting it on your wall, taping it together. Mm-hmm. I really think that rudimentary stuff teaches you how to edit. Hmm. Because you're, like, forced to make smart shots knowing that they would cut together versus being able to go back and do dailies and, like, when you're doing things digital. It's more expensive, but I don't know. It was interesting. Did you mm-hmm. ever have to do that?
1: No, I did. Um, I, at one stage, I was going to teach um, an editing class at a, a school back in England. Um, oh. So I learned a bunch of programs, and uh, but it was all...
0: Are they all out- outdated now in that?
1: <laughs> completely. I think one of them doesn't well, exist I, yeah one of them was a. um i can't even remember what it was called but yeah it was it was there and then like avid was on the fence yeah, for a little that. bit and then avid came back massively and i think all the other small well
0: now adobe premiere is sort of the, is thing. the thing yeah because now you rent the adobe suite basically for the month and it gives you like after effects and everything oh, for okay. like 50 bucks a month mm-hmm. but now you can like edit a movie on your phone yeah Which is like amazing because it gives a lot more filmmakers opportunity to do things. And it also floods, makes it harder. It's more competitive now, Mm -hmm. I think, than it's ever been. Mm. And to kind of like find a voice. Like I'm hoping that since there's not a lot of Syrian and Lebanese writers out there that I'll like corner the market. But you know, it's really not as easy as that sounds. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought, like, I had a niche situation going on, but, you know, it's rough, and you just have to keep pushing forward. That's Mm. the one thing that I learned. I'm going to be that old bitch with, like, a bunch of miniature poodles still writing scripts, hoping somebody's going to pick them up. Mm. So come find me. (laughs)
1: Um, with, uh, so you have 40 people in your class and you said that like, uh, what, what was the, the format? You, you made films and you crewed up amongst that 40 people. Well, once you, you hit
0: everything? like that senior level, like you finally were, but every year you made a film mm-hmm. and it would be on a different, like you had to start with a, you know, super 16 and then you went to 16 or super eight, then you went to 16 millimeter. And then finally, by the time you were a senior, you could shoot on 35. Mm-hmm. So, but at that point, 24 progressive had come out, which like completely changed like just you didn't even have to tell us any. It would saved you like thousands mm-hmm. of dollars. So, of course, I did an Irish mob film. I knew nothing about the Irish mob, but mm. I was like, this sounds great. Yeah. Like a lot of, which I still, and since I rewrote it actually this year to make it a feature because I feel like I owe my parents that $10,000 a cost for that senior <laughs> thesis and I'm gonna pay <laughs> them back. But, yeah, you would, like, crew up, and, like, my crew was, like, all of my friends, so I assume when they crewed up, I'd be on their crews, but it was all dudes. It was always all dudes. And to be honest with you, me and maybe one other person from that class are still pursuing film careers mm. at this point. hmm So I think it, they weed you out pretty quickly. I, if I had any advice for anyone, it would be, if you want to do anything else, do that. Mm. It's a terrible advice, but you know how it is. Like if you have other passions, you should pursue that because if this isn't what you dream and think and sleep and sweat about, then it's really not the right industry for yeah. you because it will beat you the fuck up.
1: Yeah. i, I I've uh, talking to a lot of people, and one of the reasons I started doing this was that it seems that especially uh, artistic endeavors, most people have to do something else to fund the passion that yeah. they have for them. And it's very rare that someone can make a really good living. And yeah, very um, rare. Yeah.
0: You're talking. I'm talking to one. And that's <laughs> like But it's yeah, it's one of those Yeah, it's true. And you're obviously what your priorities are change. So when you have a family, spending time with them is a lot more important sometimes than when you're 23, 25 years old and you have all the time in the world to spend, like, 16 hours on set. I'm very selfish. I still want to give my time to that until, you know. But the one good thing about the industry is you do get a couple months hiatus. Like, Mm -hmm. if you work well, you get a break. And I like not knowing where I'm going to be for other people that would drive them fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you do a nine-to-five cubicle experience?
1: I've done it, and I really... Um, one of the things I used to do was take a lot of toilet breaks (laughs) and just sit in the toilet to get away. And just to get the hell away. Yeah.
0: That's so funny. Um, (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) But yeah, there's just... But you know, I find everyone has their own individual happiness. Knowing where your paycheck is coming from obviously brings certain people, makes them content. I think... Not knowing, because I have a calling service, so there's something that happens when you're in the background stand-in world where somebody books you and you never know till the night before where you're going, what you're going to play, how long you're going to be there for, and what studio you're going to. That would probably drive a lot of people nuts. Mm. So, like, I'll probably be a Syrian refugee tomorrow, and I may be booked for a stormtrooper on Friday. So, it just, like, all depends on what the casting company wants, and that kind of randomness, I think, makes me feel better.
1: Mm. You've said before um, that you you basically like get put in the background of a lot of um, Middle Eastern stories. Yeah. and, and, and you play that. The like Hollywood perception. And, yeah. let's
0: be real. I mean, if you're not in a hijab, you're not Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. Like I was actually, I remember it was like the day before we were shooting American Sniper, and they had this trailer where a woman goes out with her son and she has, he has a bomb strapped to him, I think, or she has a bomb strapped to her, and they're deciding whether they kill the kid or not. Mm. And I had that part up until the day before, and they took a picture of me in a burqa, and they said, you don't look Middle Eastern enough. Now, I'm 100% Lebanese and Syrian, but they wanted someone shorter and darker and, like, in their mind, like, almost dirtier looking, but it's mm. like, that's not everybody in the Middle East, and I can speak being Syrian, having a full Syrian family. I know the perception is off, so... I'm happy for the work. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> since 9-11, I've worked a lot. But it's not... I'm not playing a Middle Eastern doctor. I'm playing, like, somebody running for my life or somebody in a bazaar somewhere. Hmm. Which, I mean, is fine for now. I would like to change that perception, hmm. you know, in that
1: regard. Hmm. Do you think... Why do you think that perception is so deeply ingrained? I mean, it, it, in my mind, in film, you've it, it, there's, like the progression for middle eastern characters yeah. has basically gone from like Omar Sharif and Lawrence Arabia to, to post 9/11. Yeah,
0: well, it's 9/11, you know, and I think it is really easy to believe that an entire culture is a certain way if you want to rally around it and get into a war. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like the media is trying to portray. I mean, if you've been to Lebanon or Beirut, it was called the Paris of the Middle East for a reason. There are billion-dollar buildings on the water. There are designers everywhere. It's absolutely beautiful. Like the nightclubs there make Vegas look like a joke. And there's women in short, tight dresses walking around. There's a huge Christian population, but that will never be... Exposed, I don't mm-hmm. think you're just always going to assume that you know everybody's in a burka. Mm-hmm. I just there's a huge Catholic population. The actually Melkite Catholic, which is where my family, I'm not religious, but I come from a Melkite Catholic family, is dates back to 1 A.D. Mm-hmm. And so if you believe in the Bible, if that's what you subscribe to. You know Jesus wasn't walking through Rome, so obviously in the Middle East there's going to be a huge contingency of people who believe that. For me. Basing a whole religion, my whole spirituality off a book that was written after the fact is a little—it's a little tough for me to swallow. But to each their own.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Sorry to seem like skeptical. <laughs> just like Tupac was dancing on stage at Coachella as a freaking hologram a few years ago—that yeah. was believable. So you—it's and it wasn't real. So to believe that a bunch of people wrote this shit after the fact and this is what you're basing your entire—it's like crazy to me. Yeah. Sorry.
1: No, that's there's all right. my
0: Catholic rant. But if you go to my parents' house, there's like literally a light up picture of Jesus that turns like sixty different colors <laughs> that they commissioned <laughs> in Mexico. So, no less than four nativity scenes, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um. So, yeah, an Irish gangster flick. Why? What, what was the.
0: Why was the motivation behind that? Was that that
1: to get as far away from what you thought people were going to expect of you? Yeah,
0: probably. And also I have like an affinity for some reason with organized crime. Like Mm. I, because here's the thing is, I think the plight of the soldier, the plight of like the gangster, the plight of uh, the cartel is all very similar. It comes from being displaced usually ethnically in a certain area, and needing to sort of empower yourself. Mm-hmm. And once it turn, once murder and greed come into it, you're changed as a person. You see the motivation change. So I always thought that was an interesting story to follow. But also, I felt like people expected me, obviously, to make chick flicks. And mm-hmm. I think, subconsciously, I was like, I'm going to make a dude's film. And now my writing is very different. Like, mm. I, I now I'm, don't find a weakness in being feminine and acknowledging that. I'm not... I wouldn't call myself girly, but I don't ignore the feminine anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that makes you... Ill- I don't think emotions make you lesser, and I think that's what was ingrained into me. Mm. If you're a girl and you cry, then you're weak. And now that I know, like, if you don't cry, you get cancer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think there's... Uh, I mean, that's such a... That's such a lazy way of... of uh, not, not, you know, no, but, but I know that, what that, you mean. Yeah, yeah and, and I think... Um, one thing that we've learned recently is that men are more emotionally volatile because they're so bad at dealing with <laughs> so.
0: Well, I think there's a cultural norm that you just shouldn't be able to express yourself. But why, But why? Hmm. I just feel like the more communication, the better. And I mean, at the end of the day, obviously, my shift in male and female views has changed since I was a child. But I definitely grew up in an environment where I didn't want to be thought of as lesser because I couldn't do something so mm-hmm. maybe that's why I know how to shoot guns now I mean mm-hmm. that's why I drove an SUV for such a long time <laughs> <laughs>
1: um do you what What part of the filmmaking thing when you sit down and go I is is the right in the part that makes the film for you or do you just roughly map out an idea and say I'm gonna make it when we actually get the camera going or what, what part do you do you feel is is is, is the most it's the most,
0: uh, it always starts with music. Mm-hmm. I think for me, like being able to put on a pair of headphones and walking for six hours is the best way mm-hmm. to write. I usually write from the end to the beginning, mm-hmm. only because like I know how I want it to end, but I don't want you guys to know how it ends. So to me, it's like, there's nothing worse than watching a trailer and knowing the entirety of the movie Yeah. to me. So I think that, I, and it's a very visual thing. I think since I was a child, I've always, my thoughts have always been in edits. Is that sound weird? Mm, no. And so it's like even when I'm planning to do something, I plan it so visually that I'm such a camera person. You're such a sound person. When I have to do Pro Tools, I want to fucking kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) Like I hate doing this. I have such a respect for people who do Boom because I've had to do it for many people. I've worked on many projects. And it is the most thankless job. But it's one of the most important aspects of the film is the sound because you can almost fudge visuals and call it a choice Mm -hmm. you can't fuck with sound and we all know adr does not sound Mm -hmm. as close to i mean do you feel like it does
1: um i am a very much a performance purist and i i know that there are some actors that build their performance in adr um and you see them on set making choices and working it out um but the sound quality i I it's not yeah it's 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 and i mean it's not This isn't a a criticism of the fidelity of what they're producing. It's more that the environment is deader and there's like a a dryness that's inherent to film, to to recording sound in a a soundstage. Well, it's like,
0: yeah, you're trying to replicate a huge warehouse with hundreds of people in mm -hmm. it. In a small room. Yeah. And it's just, there's always going to be, I mean, I know you get room tone and stuff. I don't know all the technicalities of sound, but I know it's a motherfucker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a couple of actors who are really good in ADR because they change their shape and their performance. I I, one of the guys I used to work with, um, he would get me to go and boom ADR sessions because he wanted to have a little more input on the mic placement. Oh, okay. And because I'd worked on the project, I knew roughly what microphone was used and how it would have been boomed. Did that help it? It did a little bit, I think. Um, um, The editors definitely liked it. Um, I think once you, it's a a conceit that you have to get past, like most things in films, you have to get past producers. And (laughs) once they say, okay, (laughs) this is worthwhile, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like you can do pretty much anything to improve what's being made but it's like the cost will always Always be there.
0: and I think um, a lot of well I would tell a lot of aspiring directors like edit your ass off Mm -hmm. like I think that's one of the most important things to know how to do prior to ever stepping on set like you need to know how shots sync up you need to know like what you're supposed to get coverage there's nothing worse then you know getting like a producer's friend as a director mm-hmm. and they shoot for 14 hours a bunch of shit that they don't even fucking need.
1: Yeah, they don't know how to block and they and don't yeah. know how to cut and it in their head. And-
0: you're making everything a nightmare for everyone else, so I just feel like, prepare, like be prepared, like going to set. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I have not directed anything but my own projects, but even working on Speed Network shows where you have like four people as your team, like two camera guys, a sound guy, and a PA. Mm-hmm. That was my ass, like carrying everything and sending footage back. But like you learn, like... <laughs> You can only get a certain amount of shots, and you need to make them fluid, and you need to know how they're going to cut together and move on. So,
1: mm-hmm. um, What is the uh, documentary project that you're working on?
0: Um, it's called The Missing Link, mm-hmm. and I found a doctor named Svetlana Maskutova who has created this thing called MNRI, which is um, neurosensory motor reflex integration, which is a very long Title, But basically, it's reintegrating your reflexes. So it's a neurological treatment that only requires a table, a therapist, and a person. But I have seen children who have been blind since birth start to see after three days. A year later, have 75% of their vision restored. Their Mm. G-tubes have come out. I've seen many people with cerebral palsy who are in wheelchairs now running and playing on sports teams. Mm. It's anything neurological. So you're talking autism to Alzheimer's. Um, her and her son created this treatment, but unfortunately, while I was filming a year and a half into it, her son was murdered. Mm. And the circumstances are very suspect. Uh, they don't have much information. The police said they didn't know much from the autopsy, but after working on CSI for 10 years, you know, Jamie, that an autopsy tells you a lot. Mm. And if somebody's jaw is dislocated, you can say that that's not a natural Mm -hmm. Death if their body goes missing and it shows up in a park and they're fucked up. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of holes in there. So now I'm just sort of trying to figure out where to go with this situation Mm. next. I know that this is a treatment the world needs to see because I've seen kids with autism who are nonverbal, not able to speak, um, are now able to talk. I've seen kids who couldn't sit still are now in Carnegie Hall speaking Mm. seven languages, playing the piano. So this is really like something that isn't using surgery or pills to progress children exponentially and adults. I mean, I, I just feel like it needs to be exposed. Mm. I'm just stuck now. Three three plus years, like, do I end it now or do I pursue this murder? Mm. So I hope I see you again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is that crazy? Is that a lot of information?
1: Ah, is a cra- I mean, it's a crazy story, but it's like, you know, like you said, it's three and a half years of,
0: of work. Of I problem. mean, this woman has been flying to disaster sites, and working on children with PTSD since Chernobyl, mm-hmm. um, which I think was either 84 or 86. 86. 86, yeah. And so, um, thank you. Same no. year
1: as the Hand of God in uh, the World Cup. Oh, really? That's uh, I, I like
0: how that's how you reference that situation. Well, I, I when
1: <laughs> I was in school, um, I got into an, a, a debate with a couple of friends that we were saying the most important thing that happened in 1986 was Um, the Chernobyl disaster, and someone said, no, it's the hand of God. It was the football. Everyone cares more about football. So we went to our history teacher and asked him, and he said the hand of God. Holy (laughs) shit. I believe that, though, actually. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and basic, I mean, you name it, the Orlando shooting, the floods. She's kind of developed this treatment over time. I've had it done on me, and this sounds really weird, but after the first treatment, I felt like I was on ecstasy for, like, two weeks. Mm but without a weird come down Mm -hmm. or like... Or a backache. (laughs) Or a backache or lower (laughs) serotonin. It's very strange. She can like touch your side and be like, oh, you have PTSD from when you're 12 years old. You're like, I remember falling out of a tree at 12 years old and I've been scarred ever since. Mm. It's very bizarre. It sounds like a lot of magic. It's not, though. Your body can heal itself if given the opportunity. I mean, it's a very complex system of reflexes. You have to think. Let's just say we'll take in... Uh, We'll take cerebral palsy, for example. So if your brain is a computer, it's sending out different signals to different parts of your body. We'll call those the USB cords, going to the printer, going to the mouse. When one of those USB cords is tampered with, obviously the signals are not going correct. So let's say the printer doesn't go there. Your brain is still plugged into the wall at that point, but the signal's cut. That's sort of what happens when something happens to you neurologically. That error signal will keep coming up. Because the printer's working, it's just not going through. Mm -hmm. Your body is in fight or flight until you come out of that. So you'll see a lot of kids with like, um, what is it called when they're um, uh, fetal paralysis? Mm -hmm. Their body, they're literally these autistic children who are screaming are not screaming because they're misbehaved. Their body is going through this trauma consistently. It needs to come out of fight or flight mode. And this is what's happening. It's giving it the opportunity to reconnect. And so to see that, it's so crazy. How am I the only one who... is filming this shit. I feel like I've now have this responsibility to expose it, mm. at least before the pharmaceutical companies find out. <laughs> How far is the rage on this podcast? <laughs> You'll be all right. Don't yeah. Worry.
1: yeah, I hope. Um, so, documentary, and you've been doing a comedy show as well. Or is yeah. That, yeah, I've
0: done sex talks. I like storytelling. It's like mm-hmm. a version of stand up. I think mm-hmm. you should be doing this because I'd it gives you a, like a narrative. Mm. So it's not you're just standing up there telling jokes, there's a subject, and it's not, it doesn't always have to be funny. I just find that I had the most awkward childhood, so it just mm. tends to be funny. Like I had corrective shoes and like braces for long and a neck gear and terrible hair. And I, the ceramic flat iron hadn't been created or laser hair removal, so it's like. Times were rough in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Ethnic wasn't in. Either it was big asses. It was mm. all about the boobs. So I was not on the radar yet. But <laughs> <laughs> welcome to J-Lo and Kim Kardashian. Like, I'm here, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Ethnicity finally came in, Jamie. It took a long time. Yeah. Growing up in Southern California, like, it's just, it was always the blondes with mm-hmm. the big boobs. And I'm just not there.
1: Mm. So... Is um, I- what was the, the makeup of your family? You said you had a big family. Like, uh, How many Mostly brothers and sisters? Or? I, well,
0: there's four of us, um, but my mother has two other sisters, and my grandma has like seven sisters, so it's very much like a female. Mm. So I think that always helped me be like, oh, women are fucking strong. Like mm-hmm. my grandmother came here. This is kind of a crazy story, but she came here at 18, and her husband... I think was 60. Like my grandpa now would be 120 if he was still alive. Like Mm. my actual grandfather, not my great grandfather. But he died like very quickly and she spoke no English and she had three girls to take care of and was in a country that was not, I mean if you travel anywhere in Europe, You go to the airports, there's going to be six or seven different languages present. If you drop in the middle of the Midwest, even now, and you don't speak English, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no way to navigate. So I can't imagine then. And she just kind of was like, I'm not going back to Lebanon, and just made it happen. Got, like, two different factory jobs. Ended up becoming the foreman for the uh, workers' rights at that time. And, like, she was a tough bitch. Mm -hmm. And that was my example. So I think even though... Her daughters have more of a nuclear life than she had. I think they, they want that for their kids more than they realize that we've been given independence. We don't necessarily have to. Mm. It's like a weird construct to have like very strong women, but they also really want you to like
2: mm-hmm.
0: get married and just for their own sake.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I'm the only one who doesn't have kids in my family. Mm. And that's totally fine with me, guys. I have batteries and two dogs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't want to know how the dogs come into that, but um, they're like my kids. Oh yes, okay, yes. They don't watch me. That's gross. Yeah. I'm in the other room. <laughs>
0: Guys, I'm not that gross.
1: Um, vodka. Yeah. How did that come around? I know how vodka itself came Yeah, I came but.
0: around. Well, like any normal person who works in the industry, there were obviously hiatuses where I needed to work. And so there was a restaurant called Nick's in Beverly Hills that had a 28 degree vodka freezer. Mm-hmm. And when I walked in that restaurant, when I started working there as a host, they didn't really have much of a tour. It was just one guy in there. He didn't know really anything about vodka. He was just entertaining. And I knew that an industry was starting to come into its own with Mixology, but... It was kind of untapped, this, like, tasting aspect of it. And once I went in there and realized that at 28 degrees, there's actually, like, very subtle flavor notes. There's finishes. There's textures that aren't present when it's just room temperature. And this is my biggest advice. If you think vodka tastes like rubbing alcohol, don't store it like rubbing alcohol. Mm. Like, don't leave it on your shelf. It should be in your freezer. These vodkas are created in very cold countries, and the whole purpose is they don't freeze when being transported. So I really think the distillers intend for it to be at a chilled temperature. And in that environment, you taste cocoa notes. You taste cinnamon notes. Sometimes they're peaty. Sometimes there was a rice vodka that used to dry out everything in your mouth like a sake. And after a while, I realized, like, oh, shit, like, I can do something with this industry. Mm-hmm. And being a female, you, I don't think people expect you to have this kind of knowledge. They just want you to be in a cocktail dress serving them shots. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, we turned it into an experience. And then from then... I don't know, it became kind of a love for me. I maybe thought I was a vodka expert in college, but now I am a real one, guys. Mm. <laughs> so I don't it's an interesting industry, you know, it's I wouldn't call like a film will always be my number one, but vodka is just like I don't a dirty martini with a splash of Tabasco is like a thing of beauty. Have you ever had one? Oh, dude.
1: I haven't with Tabasco.
0: Yeah, just a tiny little, cuts mm. that salt in half, and it's sort of, that nice little heat on the back is so wonderful. Mm. It's like a good scotch at the is end of the night. Is it just
1: straight straight vodka? Do you don't even put the vermouth the in? No,
0: I think that the vermouth is such an outdated thing, nobody uses it. Mm-hmm. Um, vodka marketing now is just a straight vodka, but if you get a potato-based, if you're doing something savory, potato tends to be grainier, so it actually elongates that salty finish. Mm. What your vodka's made for, from actually changes the course of your drink. So So if you're someone who likes a fruit-based cocktail, you should go with wheat. It's super clean. It's a little bit bitey, but it doesn't change the flavor of fruit. But if you're someone who likes a little saltier, a little dirtier, you want a little bit more texture in that. You want to go potato, go a little grainier.
2: Mm.
0: Is that too much? And if you're a scotch or you're a whiskey drinker, go for a rye-based vodka. It'll be more complex. It transitions from earthy to sweet. You wouldn't think this, but if you really try it at the right temperature it's so good Mm. (laughs) can you tell i love vodka (laughs) yeah and i'm a lightweight guys like i smoke more weed than i would ever drink vodka but Mm -hmm. i do appreciate it
1: um what is your your process for creating you said you like to walk around listening to music and then the actual sitting down and doing the the writing side of it Mm -hmm. what do you do you smoke a joint or drink <laughs> well, some vodka or go for it. <laughs> I don't think you've
0: ever seen me not high, Jamie, to uh-huh. be honest with you. Mm. Um, is that weird? That's no. I'm not a chill person, though. And I think people think that because I'm high all the time. Mm. I'm actually kind of insane. Um, <laughs> just so you know, I'd be like bouncing off these walls right now. Uh, I think that what people get tripped up writing is they think about the process from beginning to end. But I think if you write scene by scene, it slowly becomes a puzzle that mm-hmm. finds its way in. And I think also urgency. People want to finish it quick. I'm, I've been writing this pilot now for five or six years. And finally, now at this stage, 725 drafts in, I'm like, oh, shit, I finally got it. Even though I may have thought I got it 45 drafts ago. It's, you have to almost humble yourself. If six people give you the same opinion, maybe... Think about mm-hmm. that. But there's also a line of, you know, if it's really creative, if it's in your heart, I know people have taken 10 years to get a project to go through and they really stuck with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Deadpool. How long did that take? They said like roughly 10 years, yeah. right? To sort of, and if he had given up at any point, I mean, it changed the way, and obviously you know about this more than I do, the superhero movie is made now. Now it can be more graphic, now it mm-hmm. can be edgier. I feel like, right as Suicide Squads, like, was so shitty, um, Deadpool <laughs> came up it <and laughs> was so bad
1: yeah, it was it, that, that one definitely had a feeling of like being made by committee and remade. I think it's less made by committee and it's more the remade by committee with the yeah didn't the they DC.
0: reshoot it though they to make it reshoots.
1: edgier they did a lot of um the, the music was all tacked on to make it seem more like a little like music a music video, video yeah. yeah and it's I don't think that's what um David Ayers was intending at all. Um, I miss
0: music videos. That was yeah. like the first, uh, to me that was like my first kind of way into filmmaking because it was such a short way to show a story and I think that's where music comes in is like it's so inspirational in mm-hmm. that way. And I miss that art of like, remember when MTV showed music videos? Mm. Like you waited for them? They were amazing. Yeah, I even like the Backstreet Boys stuff. I, re-
1: I remember before MTV when you, they would, especially like a Madonna video would oh, yeah aired.
0: Wasn't TV Killed the Radio Star the first music? TV Killed the Radio Star was the first music, Yeah, right, guys. Okay, so I didn't listen to any 80s music. I was in the car (laughs) with my mom, so I have a vast knowledge of 60s music, (laughs) and then I woke up in the 90s. So anything 80s,
1: I just glossed it. it. I didn't particularly like it. I I, I went backwards. Did you?
0: Yeah. I just feel like the 60s just, oh, man. That shit is good. I went to a Smoky Robinson Robinson concert last year. It's one of the best concerts I think I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. Is that terrifying? No, it's just that living writer. room experience with him. And you're like, he wrote so many amazing yeah. songs. Mm-hmm. Shop around. <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually died OD'd in the seventies and came back in the eighties. Like I definitely think one of my past lives were mm-hmm. in the sixties. Mm. I actually think I might have, this sounds really weird. I and this is just honestly the truth I, I, I think i was a black woman in the 40s like i think that's when i was born cuz like for, for some reason and i i i know that sounds really weird but have you ever had like sense memory from things you haven't experienced
1: um i don't know i i um i have a like what is your take on past lives i i'm sure that it could happen i'm sure um reincarnation is possible I know that I'm completely open I'm very well look at your son
0: dude Mm -hmm. he is like an old soul Mm -hmm. versus like you'll meet a 55 year old you're all you just came to this earth like how are you even functioning right now at 55 Yeah, I I feel like you can tell I don't know that's just my own
1: yeah, I, I the big problem I have is that I had a drinking problem when I was a teenager so I kind of have a big gap in gap memory. in that so I'm not sure if stuff I'm mem- remembering is actually it's my like in <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: like if that trauma you experienced or not yeah. well
1: how long were, were you drinking for would you say in that I started memory? drinking when I was about eight or nine maybe 12 seriously and then up until about heavily until about 25
0: now do you I honestly think that because the alcohol rules in Europe are more lenient that kids don't binge as much but I think alcoholism is just an individual situation Mm. because I'm I I do think that being 21 and being legally allowed to drink here it just seems late like that person can go fight in a war they can own a gun Mm -hmm. but they can't have a beer it just seems like you're the scope of what responsibility you think they can have but in Europe you can have wine pretty early, right?
1: Yeah, I think in England or in Britain, there are restrictions on the hours that you can drink, which makes for a binge culture. Uh, okay. A lot of people, the, the cutoff is 11 o'clock. And this is. Um, oh, really? I'm, and I don't know if this is true or not. I was told that the reason was that during the First World War, too many people were coming to work to the munitions factories drunk. Oh, so damn. they introduced licensing okay. and the licensing was that the, the pubs would only open from 11am to 11pm but
0: that's not how it is now I feel like I've been there parting well, late
1: yeah they, they get around it now there's a lot of uh, workarounds um, but definitely when I was young there was a I mean when we were at when, when me and my friends were all 14 you would go yeah. to a uh, off-license, buy a load of whiskey and beer and then go to the park and get drunk. And that Damn, was,
0: how did you complete high school? I don't think I
1: did, technically.
0: <laughs> you guys, you don't need a high school education to become successful in the film no. industry. <laughs> that is the first thing you need to learn. Yeah. Actually, your film degree does nothing for you. Yeah. Except for maybe get you an internship, but really, it's like yeah. what you do.
1: I think what happens, everyone that I've met in the film industry that has a film degree is either an electrician mm-hmm. or an office PA. Yeah. And that's about. And a stand in. Don't forget who you're looking at. (laughs) Yay,
0: LMU, $150,000 later. (laughs) I always tell my mom, I'm like, as I'm wearing my hijab, like, I'm sorry you paid for college. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, though, I will give Shonda Rhimes actually a shout out because I was a White House staffer. As a Middle Eastern Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first shows where they professionally showed you in that environment consistently and there was never a separation between you and other people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I also realized that once Trump got elected, people were so much nicer to me when I was walking around the um, lot in mm-hmm. a full hijab because they felt bad for me. Yeah. And I, I like wanted it's like People act. People were more proper around me. Actually, like some people told me they wouldn't cuss around me because they thought that I was Muslim, which was so weird because I was just in the wardrobe line with them in like literally a tank top and shorts. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they thought was happening. <laughs> but I will say there is like I, I would expect more hate because of what's happening. But there wasn't. It was actually more of an extension of like I'm sorry, but we're also in L.A. Yeah, I don't know if I was in the south. In doing that, that would it be may insane. be
1: different, but I've I found, um, you know, I think ra- that the racism there is, um, the obvious, overt, yeah, mean, nasty, just angry racism. And I would like to think of myself as being very progressive, yeah, but I feel like I have to be to make up for the mean, extra racist yeah, so, which I think yeah. is racism in another way it's like I, I you know if I ever see it's a like, black person know, here I'm always like oh I have to you know I want them to know that I'm not scared or afraid so I'm gonna smile and say hey how you doing yeah. it's like, and so it's an, an overcompensation yeah. in
0: that regard I would say that your version of racism though is always tenfold better than the other <laughs> version <laughs> i <I'd> hope so <laughs> I just I think that there, somewhere in the south they're still fighting the fucking civil war and it's mm-hmm. like come on guys Like, and I think there is a truth that to the extent that, like, people and uh, th- are feeling like the white culture is getting marginalized, but I feel like that's not true. There's room enough for everybody in yeah. this situation. I
1: think that's the the crazy thing for me with that. And I mean, I'm I'm like a white straight male. I'm like I could be the worst person in the world. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> the he is or, English, guys. Yeah, it, yeah. No, just <laughs> it's just a couple of choices, and I could be terrible. But, yeah. um, but
0: anyone could be terrible, though. There's trash in every yeah, culture. Yeah,
1: exactly. I think that the 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 weirdest thing for me is the every other culture in the world that comes to America integrates and, and fits in and makes do, you know, yeah. they, they maintain a lot of their um, uh, hereditary, yeah. uh, not hereditary, but like the, the uh, traditions and yeah,
0: there'll be cultural areas. Yeah, of like you said about the, the, the,
1: the light up Jesus and yeah. leader, all that. So, and you know, you go to anyone's family in their, their, their home, and they they have it as like, this is our family, this is where we all live and this is where we be us. Then they go out and they integrate and fit in and do what they need to do to survive. White people are fucking awful at that. They're like, no, I'm gonna go to whatever country in the world and I'm gonna shout loudly until someone understands (laughs) what I'm saying because this is bullshit.
0: Yeah, I don't know when England, like it's so weird to me that you can go to like what is considered a third world country and you can speak to someone who, uh, would say they had no education, but they can still speak three languages.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, and here it's like to get into college, you need two years of Spanish.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I just think that's crazy. Why would you not be teaching other languages starting in kindergarten? I think that's such an egotistical view that everybody should speak English. Also, learning a lot of different languages just makes you just more thoughtful in general, I yeah. think. Like, there's something about how being immersed in somebody else's culture, which takes you out of yourself. I do, but also, isn't there some crazy statistic for people that have passports in this country? And that mm-hmm. act, and I think it's something like, I, I don't want to name the statistics, cause I know I'm wrong, but there's a, a large amount of people that don't have passports and don't give a fuck. Yeah. Which is so strange to me. How do you not yeah. want to know what's outside of this bubble? But yeah. we elected a reality star.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We are, the, people are watching us wondering what's happening next week on our show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just... I know it's a terrible <laughs> thing, and it's like I like, but in the same regard, like, and I think like actually, I heard I went to New York and heard Obama speak at a. There's something about being a, a granddaughter of Middle Eastern immigrants going to a beautiful Jewish synagogue, watching the first African American president that we had speak. Where I was like, oh, this is my America, and he was even saying like, you know, if you ask somebody who is gay, if you ask somebody who's black, if you ask somebody who was not able to be who they are, like 30 years ago, like what's the best time to be living? This is the best time to be living, like Mm -hmm. for many people who are not accepted. So as horrible as turning on the news is every day, change is something that's happening at a rapid rate. Mm -hmm. We can't live fucking in the 60s forever. Like how is this shit still coming out? How is someone able to drive through a crowd of people and kill someone and our president doesn't condemn them for promoting hate? Mm Like that's the part where I like you i but is it just because we're on the coast that we we feel no. this way? the bulk of the country can't feel like that's okay
1: i I think we go back to that idea that like some people some people have decided that you know they'll believe what they want to believe in him to make it easier that to they make made it easier. that choice you know they, they they said well, and i I get it you know i i okay i I may be different. I've always hated the person Yeah, that he is. I, I, when he was doing reality TV, when he, he was, was just a, he always. was an obnoxious prick. And I always thought, yeah. God, this guy is like the worst thing. And he represents the worst aspects of America, which is greed and just, just being loud and Ugh. rude and obnoxious and sexist. And the fact that people were like, yeah, I'm signing on because I don't have a choice or because th- things aren't working out as quickly or as well as I want, or everything is going to shit. And there, there were certain elements that were, you know, there, for everything that was good about having a, an African American president and showing that progressive step, there were so many regressions in that you had like the 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 house kind of flipped over to the Republican side, and we lost a lot of support for workers in that. Mm. So job insecurity is is terrible right terrible, now. Yeah. Uh, wage stagnation is terrible. Look There's, at the teachers. Yeah, I know, right?
0: It's insane. You want to educate our all of our population and you don't pay them enough, but yeah. you also want to maybe arm them.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just like, have you... And the fact that they're striking en masse in these, in these uh, enclaves around the country where it's so anti-union, it's so impressive, oh, and yeah. no one cares. No one's talking about it. No one's looking at it because our media is so like, yeah, we're going to go with the... we're gonna go
0: watch kanye lose his mind yeah
1: exactly so it's like i I get it i get why it happened i don't like that it happened i don't like him i don't care what he does he could have put swore his oath and walked out and and become a completely new person and signed a series of bills and i would have been like this guy's still a prick i don't care he's always been a prick and he's given birth to these little words i mean
0: Well, I think he just gave a voice to people who for at least the last, let's say, decade were afraid to be openly blatantly racist. Yeah. Because they were seeing the change in the country. But as soon as he was like, Fuck it, I'm gonna say whatever I want, there was no one stop there's no one condemning anyone from doing that. So
1: And it's you know, it's the crazy thing is that those people who, who were supposedly denied a voice, all that was happening was that Everyone was saying to them, you know, maybe you shouldn't say that. Maybe you should think about whether or not you should talk like that. Yeah, like what are you putting in the atmosphere? Yeah, and that was enough for them to go, oh, this is crazy. How dare you oppress me? I'm going to. yeah
0: (laughs) Like the taking the knee thing to me is so just fucking ridiculous. How would you not let someone have the right to do that? You're out on a stage shouting and twittering everything you fucking believe Mm -hmm. and want, but they can't like in a very peaceful way, protest police brutality. Mm -hmm. I just feel, because if they, if we said it was okay, then we had to acknowledge the fact there was police brutality. And I think that's what that came down to.
1: There's a lot of issues. I mean, that's another thing with, with the gun violence issue is that to really address the problem with guns in this country, you have to look at police violence with guns as well. And that's something which I think a lot of people aren't ready to, to, to address, deal with that yeah. situation.
0: I and mean, it's just fun. it's funny actually coming from a mindset where people immediately think your culture is super aggressive and responsible mm-hmm. for all of these mass attacks but the last however many shootings were done by American
1: it's men been white men that have a history of uh, domestic violence.
0: Yeah. So. It's just and the one thing I think that people aren't really looking into which you, I mean, people will take this how they want. Is that with a lot of these mass shootings, a lot of these people are on mixed antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a chemical level taking a lot of different drugs, it does fuck with you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that makes you violent, but there's a lot of brain, your brain really is a sensitive thing. I know people, stories of people who've gotten in car accidents, were very docile human beings prior and went on a fucking killing spree afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's not, they're not bad people but when there's a chemical imbalance how do you deal with it and a lot of these drugs their side effects are suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. so i just feel like we need to also like look at the human being who that person was what they were going through like how they got to the place that they're at i just feel people are afraid to examine that part yeah
1: and there's such a lack of basic social care in, in this country at any level there's no there's nothing in place as a social safety net to help anyone so it's very easy to go from that level of, like, okay, I have a job, I have this, I have that, I the the depths of...
0: Yeah, and depression's rough, man. I Mm. think it's a very human thing to go through. I think since it's taboo and people don't want to talk about it, but, like, you're not always going to be happy. And there's going to be months where it's super fucking shitty. And you have to kind of roll through that. But I understand it's debilitating. So it's a weird line because, obviously, if somebody is deep in it, you want them to have relief as soon as possible. And for some people, prescription medication works in that way. Mm -hmm. But for others, it just crosses those wires and Mm. fuck. I mean, but that's, like I said, everyone's going to have their opinion on this and I'm I'm probably going to strike a chord. A lot of people hate my view on medication, Mm. which is fine. That's why I make a documentary (laughs) that doesn't have anything to do with medication.
1: (laughs) Um, Where can people find you and do you want people to find you or follow you or or look Uh. at what you're doing? If
0: you try to add me on Facebook, you're getting the basic me, which is the me that you know, my aunts and uncles see, which is not the fun version of me. Mm-hmm. Go to Instagram, because they don't know how to use that yet. <laughs> <laughs> and don't judge me. Um, I'm the Mo Farah, M-O-E-F-A-R-A-H. I'm the slowest Mo Farah there is right now out in the world. You know Mo Farah. He's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And he's so skinny. Mm-hmm. I love his legs. Uh, <laughs> but I'm the Mo Farah with an E. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah, no distance running.
0: Yeah, no. I'm actually Americans. very slow. Yeah. I don't know why
1: that happens. All the weed and vodka.
0: That's probably what it is. <laughs> I'm a decent golfer now.
1: You are? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw the little video of you. See, guys.
0: I think that's, again, like me naturally being competitive with men for the rest of my life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, if you're dating me, like, be prepared to play foosball, ping pong. Like, I fucking get really competitive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.